And here we go. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Live With Certainty. We're learning how to trust. Now, today, we are going to kind of build on what we've learned on in previous episodes, but we're also going to be making a quantum leap forward. I don't know how to explain that in any other way than just do it. So please, fasten your seatbelts and come along with me on what I believe will be a fascinating little journey. Let's recap so we know where we're coming from and then we can appreciate where we're going to. We've learned about the importance of tochacha. We gotta rebuke or reprove. Reprove, speak up when you see the wrong things happening. The case we built is that this has everything to do with protecting oneself from the negative impact of peer pressure. You become a source of influence rather than being influenced. You learn how to be apart from society when it's flowing in the wrong direction instead of being a part of society and simply following the leader in a mindless and moral um, shall we say, moral empty fashion, or worse. Where am I going to get the courage to speak up from? I need these people. They butter my bread. No, they don't, says Rabbeinu Bahaya. Hashem does. And so we learned that a person who has betochen, who has trust in Hashem, will not hesitate to rebuke others. You won't be ashamed you won't be bashful. You won't even be concerned about shaming them if that's what it takes. Because in the end, you don't rely on them for anything. To demonstrate this, Rabbeinu Bechaya said we can lean on a verse of prophecy that comes from the great Isaiah, Yeshayahu Hanavi, in the 50th chapter of his prophecies, verse 7. He said, Hashem Elikim Yarzali, the Lord God helps me. If you're following along in the new Shara Betochen put out by Kihat Publications, we're on page 13. And we'll read the Pasuk, the verse with which we concluded yesterday's lesson with insight. The Navi said, Vahashem Elikim Yarzali. The prophet said, But the Lord God helps me. That's the meaning of Betochen. You know. Hashem is there for you. He gives you the strength and the courage that you need. Al-Kain, as such, or therefore, loy I was not embarrassed. Al-Kain, samti Therefore, or as such, I made my face like flint. Forget poker face. We're talking stone. And vo'eda, I knew, kiloi evish, I knew, I would not be shamed. They've got nothing on me. I answer to a higher power, and that leads us into today's class. 
I'm going to pick a bone with the one who annotated and arranged this translation, grouping all of these verses together in a common paragraph. I understand why it would have been done. The verse opens up, or the collection of verses begins, as the prophet said. And once we finish the quote from Isaiah, we move to Ezekiel. And it says, And he says, or and it is said, that's a quote from Ezekiel. Then we move into another quote from Ezekiel, Omar. It's actually the same verse. From there we move back to Jeremiah, Omar. And lastly, the fourth verse that will be quoted, or really I should say piece of a verse, takes us forward in Jeremiah, Omar. The fifth verse, or the concluding verse, would be a verse back to Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It all began with Isaiah. It says, As the prophet said. And then, subsequently, when we speak about or reference the scriptural verses attributed to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, we said, And he said, Okay, common logic says, well, if the first one starts with the, 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 uh, the pardon me, Kemoshi as the Navi said, and then it says, Ve'omar, 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 then it's one continuation. Here's the problem. Kemoshi as the prophet says, speaks about shame or embarrassment. That follows what we read about in the previous little paragraph. In that little subparagraph, it says, And if, or as we put it, when he'll need to rebuke them. He'll, he will not be walking on eggshells. He will not be concerned with offending people, if that's what must be said or must be done. And he will not be ashamed. You will not praise, beautify, or gloss over things which are inherently false and objectively immoral and wrong. That's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah said, Hashem gives me the strength, and therefore I was not embarrassed. If Isaiah said Hashem gave him the strength and he wasn't embarrassed, well, then you can have the same strength. Rabbeinu Bechaya believes that Isaiah's words, Hashem, God, gave me the strength, would not be unique to Isaiah. It would apply to every one of us. The next five verses don't speak about shame or embarrassment. They speak about fear. I would like to humbly submit that these five verses are separate and apart from the Pasuk in which we hear of Yeshayahu, Isaiah's certitude in doing what he must do with a stone face and not being phased. To be sure, in the verse prior, it says, Indeed, he won't be ashamed or embarrassed. It's precisely what the Navi, what the Prophet said. However, we're now going to be adding another layer. And that introduces us to today's class, Fear No More. 
would seem to me that Rabbeinu Bachaya is moving from the notion of shame or embarrassment, feelings of inadequacy, into dealing with fear, real anxiety. In other words, not only is somebody who trusts in Hashem going to have the ability to do, well, what's right. Not only will this person no longer have to be enslaved to others, not only will this person not feel compelled to follow the whims of the day or be influenced by peer pressure, but furthermore, Rabbeinu Bechaya wants you and me to know that if we stay with him in this journey, that if we succeed in developing bitachon as it's meant to be, then we can do whatever is necessary. In this case, rebuking others or telling them off when they're behaving inappropriately without fear of repercussion or reprisal. Bitachon enables us or must necessarily rid us of our fears forever. What an amazing thought. Imagine never being afraid again of anybody. Imagining having no fear in life because you know that Hashem provides for you and nobody can get in the way of that. That's what we're about to learn. The Oimer, in addition to the notion of no shame, and the prophet says, and here he takes us off to Ezekiel. I'll read this together with you from the actual verses inside on page 13, and then we'll begin to delve into this together. Ezekiel 2, verse 6. Altiramahem. This is not Isaiah speaking with a sense of surety or security. God promises me that I'm going to have the strength. I know He gives me the strength. I'm not going to be embarrassed. This is God speaking to, Jer- to, to Ezekiel. And He says to him, Yechezkel, Altiramahem. Don't be afraid of them. Fear them not. Umidivrehem, Altira. And of their words, do not be fearful. Ve'amar, so strange that he uses the word ve'amar and he says, because it's the same verse. Midivrehem, Altira. From their words, you should not be afraid. And mipnehem altechas. Now he translates the word altechas says, don't be dismayed. I'm somewhat dismayed by that translation. I'm not so sure it's entirely accurate. I think there's more than simply dismay here. I think there's an element of anxiety or deep concern in addition to dismay. So the prophet has received no less than four instructions from God. Four times. Three of them using the exact same verbiage. God said to him, don't you be afraid now. Okay. 
So if God told Ezekiel not to be afraid, that must mean I shouldn't be afraid. God never told me not to be afraid. He just told Ezekiel not to be afraid. Oh, well, but he told it to Jeremiah too. Ve'omar. And now we go forward to the first chapter of Jeremiah's prophecies. This is the eighth verse. Al-tidum Do not fear them. Leaping forward several verses in the same chapter to verse, 13, verse 17. Ve'omar. And it says, Al-techas. Once again, we have a translation of dismay, but I think there's an anxiety and a fear that frames that dismay. Al-techas mepneim. Ve'omar. And now we go back to Ezekiel, but this time to the third chapter, the ninth verse. Hashem says to Ezekiel, Kishomir chozok mitzoyr nasati mitzchecha. As a shamir, and we'll talk about that. Stronger than flint, I have set your forehead or made your forehead. Don't be afraid of them. Here he chooses to translate Techas not as dismayed, but as intimidated, and I like that a lot more. So don't be afraid of them and don't be intimidated. Five verses, three to Ezekiel, two to Jeremiah, the same message being driven home time and again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. You assume a stone countenance. You keep on trucking. Don't be intimidated. All right, here's my simple question. Clearly, if God has to exhort some of the most extraordinary human beings who ever walked the face of earth and tell them not to be afraid multiple times, in the same verse. It's pretty clear that the notion of fear and intimidation is a very powerful emotion. In fact, as we still reel from the impacts of this pandemic, I think that anybody who has his eyes wide open has seen an entire population, millions and millions and millions of people cowed into submission by fear. Everybody's fearful. The media has drummed it into people's hearts and minds. And the fear has become so intense that people have become paralyzed. I know so many people who are double vaccinated and they're still afraid. Of what? Statistically, there's a far greater chance of dying in a car accident when you go for a little drive than there is in coming to a show, for example, and davening for an hour. But people are afraid. And fear and intimidation, threats, these are some of the most powerful emotions known to humankind. And you can, apparently, control the masses with fear. I, I never would have believed this if I wasn't seeing it with my own eyes over the last year and a half. I guess my point is this. Fear is a big deal. We're almost predisposed to fear. Fear can be a good thing, I suppose, on some level. Fear means there are warning bells going off. Something is telling us you need to deal with this. God forbid a 
person could be surrounded by fire, by some other kind of dangerous situation, and the fear kicks in. So they do something to save themselves. Carnal fear is very much linked to the survival instinct. It's intuitive for people to be afraid. So much so that God has to hammer this message home to Ezekiel. Three verses, at least five times, he's telling Ezekiel, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be intimidated, don't be afraid. I'm with you, I'm taking care of you, don't be afraid. Jeremiah gets it twice, don't be afraid. Well, I'm not Ezekiel or Jeremiah. I'm just a little Mendel Kaplan. Like, if they might have been afraid and needed additional reassurance from God, you think maybe I have good reason to be fearful? <laughs> you think maybe I should be intimidated? Let me rotate that question. Why shouldn't I be fearful? I never got a guarantee from God. In the first verse, where Isaiah expresses his faith and trust in Hashem, I say we learn from Isaiah. He said, I know Hashem's with me. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to be ashamed. There are actually multiple verses that speak to the notion of pride in who we are as Jewish people and not being ashamed and not apologizing for existing. Although so often, so many of us do. <laughs> so Isaiah says, Hashem's with me. You don't believe Hashem's with you. Oh, you do. Okay, so if Isaiah said he's not ashamed because Hashem's with him, you shouldn't be ashamed either. You have betachan and Hashem. You know you're doing the right thing. Nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to cower from. But I can be afraid. What do you mean I'm not going to have fear? Of course I'm afraid of this guy. This is my biggest customer. If I say something to that person, my business could go south, says the entrepreneur. This is my biggest client. If I will say something, my client might drop me, says the professional. These are really important members of the congregation. If I say the truth, they might be offended and the congregation will suffer, said the rabbi. It could be even worse. You could have the congregant threaten the rabbi. You had better take such and such a position or we'll make sure you're fired. In most synagogues, the board controls the rabbi. That's just the way it is. And maybe I'll have to choose between his job and the kosher uh, way to live or the shulchan aruch. What are you going to do then? Ah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Well, how are you so sure? If, if Jeremiah needed multiple reassurances and God telling him, don't be afraid, do we even stand a chance? I mean, what is Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar even saying here? It gets worse. <laughs> I say it gets worse because when you start to look at these verses, it seems like it's like a jumble of verses. This doesn't seem to be cogent or coherent. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Why wouldn't you put things in order? Isaiah came first. Jeremiah came next. Ezekiel comes last. Why not frame or present these verses in the order of 
when they were said. Wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't it make sense for Rabbeinu Bechaya to have begun with Isaiah 50? And from there he should have gone to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, first a quote from verse 8, and then a quote from verse 17. And then he should have gone to Ezekiel, from the second chapter to the third chapter. I mean, to be sure, Ezekiel and Jeremiah did prophesize in similar times. In fact, it's, uh, it seems very, very clear that both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were Kohanim. They were both priests. And their tenures as Kohanim and as prophets overlapped. They certainly had very, very similar timing in their messages. The end of the first temple era. Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations and goes with the people into Babel and Ezekiel was already there with them. In the first chapter of the book of Yechezkel or Ezekiel, the third verse is, Hoya hoya dvar Hashem el Yechezkel ben Buzi. The word of Hashem comes upon Ezekiel, who is the son of Buzi. So why is the word of Hashem with Ezekiel, son of Buzi? Radak says, why doesn't it say a lie? Ezekiel speaking, he simply could have said, Hoyadvar Hashem a lie. Why does it have to say El Yecheskel ben Buzi Hakoyim? So Radak's first answer is, well, this Kain Derech Mikrolapomim. Sometimes that's how the scripture is. And he brings an example from the fourth chapter of Genesis where it speaks about the wives of a man named Lemech. Or Ve'el Moshe Amar and to Moshe, Hashem said, go up the mountain. So it's like, you know, almost like as Nachmanides puts it, there's this narrator, biblical narrator sometimes. However, Radak does conclude with this notion. He says, Ubitargram Yerushalmi, Yechezkel, Novi Bar Yirmiyohu Novi. Ezekiel the prophet is actually the son of Jeremiah. This is a father and son team, according to an ancient source known as Tagar Mirshalmi. And why is he called Buzi then? Well, Radak says, Nikri Yirmiyohu Buzi. He's called Buzi, which means scorned or scornful one. Because his generation shamed and didn't appreciate him. Now, if the Targum Yishalmi is right, this gets even stranger. If Yecheskel and Yirmiyahu prophesize at similar times or their tenures overlap, but Yecheskel is, according to at least one major opinion, the son of Yirmiyahu, the son of Jeremiah, don't you think it would make sense to kind of present this in historical order? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and his son Ezekiel. Why is it like a jumble of verses? Like, what, what, what is the point here even? He doesn't present them in order. He gives you Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 6, divides it in half, emphasizing only the words talking about fear. Sends you off to Jeremiah, the first chapter and then the third chapter, and then, and then in verse 8 and then later on in verse 17. And then he goes back to Ezekiel. It's 
like it has no order whatsoever. This literally looks like he took a handful of verses and just like threw it on the plate. Look, if I was writing an article, I'd think before I quoted verses. There's no question that one of the great Rishonim, Rabbeinu Bachaya, Bar Yosef ibn Pekuda, was very, very judicious and he chose every single word and the order of his words with the greatest of care. It is impossible for me to fathom that the verses here are quoted in haphazard fashion. So, number one, I don't really understand what it teaches me. On the contrary, if Jeremiah and Ezekiel were afraid, I'm definitely going to be fearful. And if God doesn't want me to be fearful, well, then God has to give me a personal message. And I don't understand how and why these verses are presented in the way they are. It seems entirely haphazard, which is an impossibility, something we can't accept. <laughs> which leads us to the question, what in heaven is going on here? What is the author trying to tell us? When you look at the verses and you kind of frame them by their historical details, it gets even more difficult to understand. Ezekiel's book, the Nevu of Yecheskel, opens with Maise Merkava, the vision of the chariot. Now this is a, a very lofty, spiritual, esoteric kind of vision. It's uh, very rich, if you will, in mysterious figures and imagery, symbols that are associated with them, and to say that we really have a clarity of understanding of Maise Merkava is a huge overreach. Much is written about, and even more is said, about the deeper meaning of the imagery that is portrayed or that is given to Ezekiel in the opening parts of his prophecies. It has been said that the mass revelation that we received at Mount Sinai was something akin to what Ezekiel saw in his maiden prophecy. According to some opinions, that's the reason we read the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecies on the anniversary of the giving of the Torah, on Shavuot. Interestingly, Isaiah has similar visions to Ezekiel, but it's not identical. <laughs> Isaiah's visions are much less detailed. And yes, there's some winged heavenly creatures, but the account is almost swift, sparing in words. Our sages suggest that the difference between the accounts of these two exceptional prophets, Yeshayahu Hanavi, and Yechezkel, Isaiah and Ezekiel, have everything to do with the kind of people and prophet they were. The metaphor is kind of utilizes the notion of anthropology and people who come from different backgrounds. We contrast the sophisticated urban dweller with a farmer or somebody from the rural countryside, a villager, if you will. Yeshayo Hanavi Isaiah is presented as a sophisticated, sophisticated, uh, an urban city dweller, one who is 
accustomed to seeing royalty. And so when he sees the king, it's not a big deal, as they say in, in a day's business. But the royal villager, when he comes to the big city and he has opportunity to see the king, it's an absolutely overwhelming experience that he dwells on extensively. And that, our sages suggest, is the difference between Yeshayahu's brief description and Yecheskel Anavi's lengthy description. All right, so now I know that Yecheskel is of far less spiritual stature than, shall we say, Isaiah. And perhaps because he's of this inferior spiritual stature, perhaps because he lacks that prophetic sophistication that he's so concerned. I mean, when we, when we finish the first chapter of prophecies, the very second, which incidentally intimidate him greatly and cause him to fall upon his face, Ezekiel, in the second chapter, is now standing. He's kind of back to himself, and he hears the voice of Hashem directing him to assume the position that God has created for him to go forward with the mission that Hashem is giving him. And he's being told that his words were probably not going to be well accepted. His prophecies would be tinged with mournful and suffering messages. He wouldn't be popular. Nobody was going to like him. The people were rebellious and Hashem doesn't take away the freedom to choose. The likelihood of his being successful with the rebellious Jewish people at the time was very, very small. Yechezkel is going to have to greatly strengthen himself to be able to accomplish his daunting mission. Which brings us to that first verse that Rabbeinu Bechaya quotes. So we're going to be Ezekiel, the second chapter, and we go to verse 6. Va'ata ven Adam, and you, human being, euphemism. Al tiramehem, don't be afraid of them. Umidivrehem, and from the words, al tira. Don't be afraid of them, and from their words, don't be afraid. So what's the difference between them and their words? They can be intimidating. Their words are downright threatening. Metsudas David says, Ma imchara. They will use hyperbole in describing what they'll do to you. Don't be faced. So the people are frightening. They are powerful people. They can do all kinds of things. They're threatening you. They're going to use words which we're being told is hyperbole. Don't be afraid of them. From their words? Eh, unfazed. Unfazed. They're just a prickly bunch. Saravim, saloinim, thorny people, briars. They're going to be, make you uncomfortable. You'll feel like you're sitting in a thorn bush. God tells the prophet Ezekiel. But, despite the fact that there'll be abrasive circumstances around you and the environment is going to be far less than friendly and then some nonetheless altira don't be afraid 
This is the third time in a row in the same verse we're hearing, don't be afraid. And if that's not good enough, for added emphasis, the verse continues, umipnehem, and from before them, al techot. So, the translation we got is dismayed, which I told you dismayed me. Here's what the Mitzudah Tzien says. He says, Techas is inyan shever upachad. Don't, don't fall. Don't be broken. Don't be overwhelmed by fear. So this is, this is the kind of fear which is intimidating. The kind of fear which is daunting. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be daunted. You be unfazed. You have a mission to carry out. So, so Ezekiel's really afraid. And he's got big challenges. He's surrounded by these proverbial thorn bushes, briars, prickly people. They're probably, they're not, not only not embracing him with love, but quite the contrary. Unpopular is an understatement. And they're actually even harming him. They're harming him with their words. They're offensive. Metsudas David says, Sarvonim machivim bedivre kintor kikreitzim. They are, so to speak, torturing him with their blistering words. With the words that lacerate, words that gash. And Yemiro is facing this. He feels like he's sitting in a thorn bush. And God says, you're, you're being attacked. I know this is not comfortable. But you don't be afraid. Okay. I, 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 I get this prophecy. I understand what Hashem is telling Yecheskel. I'm glad I'm not Yecheskel. Am I allowed to say that? How does that speak to me? God didn't tell me, don't be afraid, five times. And if even Ezekiel had to be told, don't be afraid, he had God speaking to him. How bad could the people have been? How much worse than they could be than they are now? They were unreceptive. They threw it back in his face. Hashem had to tell him, don't be afraid. In other words, it's natural to be afraid. So, I and me, without any prophecy whatsoever, how will I not be afraid? If anything, this verse should demonstrate that fear is something we have to deal with. So you can use mumbo-jumbo like there's nothing to fear but fear itself. I don't even know what that means. Or you can say, look, i got to overcome my anxieties and fears. I have fears. I'm going to face my fears. I'm not going to allow fear to paralyze me, to disable me from functioning. No fear? How am I going to have no fear? Ezekiel barely had no fear. Oh, by the way, Ezekiel doesn't seem to have absorbed this message so well because guess what? Because in, in chapter 3 of the prophecies, and we're going to hear about this, Sir Benobachai actually quotes this. In verse 9, God has to tell him again, Lotira Otam, don't be afraid. Velotechat, and don't be terrified. Don't be intimidated. So in total, God is telling this to Ezekiel no less than six times. 
I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't seem to wrap my head around what Rabbeinu B'chayah is telling me here, and I don't see why, why I shouldn't be afraid. Now let's move forward in Rabbeinu B'chayah's words, he says, and in addition to those words that were said to the prophet Ezekiel Yechezkel, now we have God speaking to Jeremiah. And this is right in the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecies. In fact, it's, it's the eighth verse of his prophecies. These are the words that God said to Jeremiah. We get a couple of introductory words. And God tells him, I, before I formed you in the belly, I, I knew you. Don't tell me stories of what you are or aren't capable of. I know exactly what you're capable of. And I am giving you this mission. And I... I know you don't like it. Hashem says, don't tell me I'm just a kid and I don't want to carry this out. No, no. You are eminently capable to do what I ask of you. Don't say I'm a young lad. I'm sending you. I'm commanding you, instructing you. You'll be just fine. You shall speak. Whatever I tell you, you're going to say. Now, Jeremiah, at this point, clearly must be getting very frightened because God comes along in verse 8 and he says, Al tiro Do not fear them. In other words, don't be afraid of the people I'm sending you to because, or despite the fact that they're not going to be happy with what you have to say. Jeremiah does not have bright, illuminating, optimistic prophecies. Isaiah was the lucky one who gave all these futuristic visions of a rosy, perfected, healed, and, 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 and transformed world. <laughs> Jeremiah's prophecies are gloom and doom. He has the unfortunate burden of delivering the bad messages. Mostly. Yeshayahu, Isaiah is called the prophet of Geula, of redemption. And Jeremiah is called the prophet of doom and gloom, of Puranusa. Do you know that in the English language, when a person wails and kvetches and just keeps going on with a litany of everything that's wrong, it's called the Jeremiah? Poor Yirmiyahu. Look what he got stuck with. So Hashem says to him, I know, I know that you have figured out by now that the people I'm going to send you to are not going to be rolling out a red carpet and say, Oh, what have you to say, Jeremiah? If that wasn't bad enough, Jeremiah had competition. A false prophet who gave the people fantastic messages, told them everything they wanted to hear. So he was popular and false. <laughs> Jeremiah told the truth. That hurt. And nobody wanted to listen. The Mitzudah Sian says, Al-Tira, Al-Tifached. Don't be afraid. Oh, why, why not? before whom I am sending you. Why not? Why shouldn't I be afraid? Because I'm with you, God says. The Mitzudah Tzien reframes it. I'm with you. Oh, that's good. No, it's better. I'm with you to save you. Okay, so Jeremiah got a promise that God's going to save him. I didn't get a promise God's going to save me. He was afraid, and he was a prophet, and God had to reassure him and tell him, I'm going to be there, I'm going to save you. 
I'm terrified. Why shouldn't I be afraid? Are you kidding? I read these verses, I get afraid. These great prophets whom God was speaking to had to be reassured and told time and again, don't be afraid. Do any of us even stand a chance? Seriously. Rabbeinu Bechaye goes on and he says, oh, by the way, Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi tells us, and this, of course, jibes with the fact of the matter. He says, he never said they wouldn't uh, harm him or lay a hand on him, because they did, of course. They did touch him. Yeah, like violently. They even beat him. But the good news is they're not going to kill him. You won't die, Jeremiah. You just get a bloody nose, some black eyes. You'll be thrown in a prison, but you're not going to die. You will survive. Yeah, it was pretty bad. They wanted to kill this prophet. God says, don't worry, you won't die. So here's a prophet who is heading right into the inferno, so to speak, into the, 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 uh, uh, a challenging, difficult audience who doesn't want to listen to him, who despises him, who lays hands on him violently. They beat him, they hurt him. But God says, I'm going to protect you. You won't die. So don't be afraid. Most people I know are afraid of getting beat up. You know, we had problems here a little while ago in this neighborhood. We had these anti-Semites who were basically threatening to beat up Jews. People were terrified to come to show. What was I supposed to tell them? Don't be afraid. And they'll say, uh, why shouldn't I be afraid, Rabbi? I'll say, ah, God is with you. Like, yeah, it's nice. I'm staying home. I don't think I'm coming for Shavuos. Why? Why? Because we saw a video of a guy got beat up in the streets. Or did he die? Thank God, no. So what are you worried about? You get beat up. Really? I mean, that's what we're hearing here. Don't be afraid. You'll get beat up. But don't worry. A couple of broken bones. You will not die. If Jeremiah has to be reassured by God that despite the fact they want to kill you, they won't succeed at that, so therefore don't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid? I'm just asking. Ben says, don't worry about it. It's nothing. He says, take a look in uh, verse 17. What does verse 17 say? Oh, verse 17, it's still in that first chapter of Jeremiah's prophecies. He's getting bad news, kind of messages that he's expected to deliver. And Hashem says to him, listen here, Jeremiah, I want you to strengthen yourself. You're going to have to, so to speak, uh, prepare yourself for a hard day's work. You've got a challenging time ahead of you. You're going to speak to these people. All the things that I command you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Lest I demolish you. Now it's a threat. Don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of me, says God. If you're afraid of them, I'll give you something to be afraid of. Seriously? I'll devastate you, says God. Achitcha. What is, what is this? What does this mean? This techat, achitcha. It's a permutation of the same word. So, so the Metsudah Tzien tells us pachad. It's fear. It's shever. It's being broken. Destroyed. 
devastated. Like we find in the book of Yehoshua. Don't be broken and don't be intimidated or frightened. So that helps. Oh, Rabbeinu Bechayev took out that word. That was just to Jeremiah. The part that says, Pen achitcha, lest I'll devastate you, I'll beat you down. Rabbeinu Bechayev doesn't, doesn't quote it. That's special for Jeremiah. Only he's going to get beat up by God. But you and me have to learn from Jeremiah. If God told him, You don't be afraid of your detractors. You stand up and you speak truth to power and don't be afraid of what they're going to do to you. Why not? <laughs> because... Because Jeremiah was afraid and God told him not to be afraid. Oh, that's nice. I am afraid. Well, you, you shouldn't be. Why not? Because Jeremiah was told not to be. I'm not Jeremiah! I don't even know what Rabbeinu Bechai is talking about. I'm getting more frightened every sentence I read. Oh, don't get too frightened. Let's go back to Ezekiel. This is, this is too much already. No problem. Go to Ezekiel. Lo tira osam. In case uh, you don't like Jeremiah, take it back to Ezekiel. Lo tira osam. Velo techat. He got tira and techat. He got both words together. Don't be afraid of mipneim. Ki beis meriheimah. They're uh, a house of rebellious Jews. Well, what else is new? So what? You got some rebellious people. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid. I don't know what's going on over here. What does this have to do with my life? How does this speak to me in the 21st century when I read about prophets who walked the face of earth nearly 25 centuries ago were terrified out of their wits about speaking truth to the powers to be and I'm not supposed to be afraid in today's day and age when God doesn't speak to me and certainly doesn't promise me that he's with me in any unique or special way. I'm supposed to not be afraid because he told them not to be afraid. I mean, seriously, Rabbeinu Bechaya, who are you talking to and what are you saying? (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just, we're, we're trying to understand this, right? We have, to, we have to be honest about this. Okay. <laughs> so I have good news for you. I have good news for you. This, this was my initial reaction when I was reading these verses. I'm like, I, I, I can't believe what's going on here. This, this is not talking to me. And... Um, I went to bed a little demoralized. I said, got to figure this out. This, this has got to be some kind of uplifting, empowering message. This has to be real for us. Rabbeinu Bechaya was a man of destiny. He knew what an important thing he was doing. He understood that he was the first of his genre. And he probably understood and realized that what he would write would become the foundational text for learning how to trust and living with certainty, this is the Betochen manual, the handbook. Like, there's no verses here by mistake. Everything was very carefully weighed. My dear friends, I would like to suggest to you that an extraordinary message, which will later be enforced, but an extraordinary idea and message is now being introduced to us. And it has to be introduced here because we talk about rebuking others and speaking truth to power. And Rabbeinu Bechayek can't simply leave this on the side and say, well, I'll deal with this later on in the book. He needs to address the fear factor. 
now. And he does. In a stunning way. And when you understand these verses, right, and we will with Hashem's help, you will realize fear no longer is not just a cute statement. This is the real deal. Stay with me. You will never fear people again. Seriously. You will be free of fear forever. If we can absorb this lesson together. So it goes like this. Oh, by the way, in, in case you wanted to know, the Mepharshim, the commentaries in the Be'er B'chaya, did not offer any serious illumination here. I didn't. Just some details about the verses, but the, you know, what a shomer is, it's hard stone or it's something that can cut through stone. Okay. Whether it's tough as nails or strong as a rock, it didn't really explain what was going on here and why we shouldn't be afraid. So let's step back for a moment. Let me introduce you to a fascinating medrash and the way the medrash is understood. And this will, this will take us on a journey. In the Bereshis Rabbah, which is the medrash on the book of Genesis, in the beginning of chapter 76, we quote a verse that speaks about our father Jacob. For station identification, Jacob at this point has four wives and 12 children. He's got 11 boys, he's got a little girl, and he has a pregnant wife. He's run from the home of his father-in-law who actually wants to destroy him. He's going home to his parents. He's going home to Israel, or Canaan as it's called at the time. There's one little problem. After he finally rids himself of Lavan or Laban and his threats, he now has to face his brother Esau or Esau. Esau has sworn to kill his twin brother. And uh, you can take Esau at his word. Let's just say it won't be his first homicide. He's unfortunately very well practiced. So Yaakov has got to create a strategy. We talked about that. You have to follow the means of nature. Rabbeinu Yitzchak Arma and the Akedah has a long dissertation on this, on the notion of we need to do our part and not rely on miracles. Jacob does his part. He sends messengers. It's the equivalent of diplomacy. He prays and he prepares for what will inevitably, he assumes, devolve into a violent conflict. So he prepares for battle. Now, in the midst of all this, the Torah is narrating to us how Jacob feels. Vayira Yaakov Ma'od. He feels very fearful. Vayetzerla. He's deeply pained. The Medrash says, Rabbi Pinchas taught in the name of Rabbi Reuven. Shnei Bnei Adam. 
with two human beings. Hivtichon HaKadosh Baruch who received God's guarantee. And yet, Vinisyaru, they were still afraid, even after getting God's guarantee. Habachur Shabbat the choicest or select amongst the patriarchs. Vahabachur Shabbat and the choicest or select amongst the prophets. The Bachur Shabbat is Jacob, of course. As King David puts it in the Shir Hamalot in Psalm 135, Ki Yaakov Bachar Loka. Because Jacob, he's the chosen one. He was chosen. So he's the chosen one. Ve'omer le'a Kaddish Baruch Hu, God said to him, Ve'hine anoichi imach. I'm going to be with you. He's the chosen one by God. He's got a guarantee, God's guarantee. I'll be with you. Uvasayf, and in the end, nisyare. He's overwhelmed with fear. Shanemar, as it states, Vayira Yaakov. The message goes on, the choicest amongst the prophets. Who's that? No, go back to Psalms. There in Psalm 106, we describe Moses facing off with the greatest and most daunting of challenges on behalf of the nation Israel, where God was infuriated because of the incredibly vacuous and mindless sin of the golden calf. And Moshe Rabbeinu stands in the lurch, so to speak. And it says, Lule Moshe Bechiroi. There was a breach in the wall. But Moses filled the breach. If not for Moses, but it doesn't say Lule Moshe. It doesn't say Lule Moshe Rabbeinu. It says Lule Moshe Bechiroi. He was the chosen one. He didn't run for election. He didn't ask for this job. In fact, when God gives him the job, he pleads with God to give it to somebody else. And God says, you're the chosen one. So like Jacob, who was chosen by God, Moses is chosen. That's pretty big. <laughs> I'd say that's huge if God tells you, you're the chosen one. And if that wasn't good enough, Hashem, I'm going to be with you. But in the end, he too became fearful. As it says in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where Moshe Rabbeinu has to face the fearsome, violent giant, the monarch of Bashan, Og. God says to Moshe, don't you be afraid of him. Don't you be afraid of him. And the Medrash finishes with this comment. Eino Omer Altiro Oto. It doesn't say in the scripture, God didn't have to tell you, don't be afraid. Elolami Shenityare. If God said, don't be afraid, then the person he's speaking to was afraid. So God said, don't be afraid. Think about that. The only kind of person that the scripture comes along and says, don't be afraid of, 
is the person who is afraid. OMG, Moses and Jacob, they were afraid, so much so that God had to tell them, don't be afraid. <laughs> we stand a chance. <laughs> like, how are you and I not going to experience fear? So the Eitz Yosef, in his commentary, says, you have Shnei Bnei Adam Gedolim, two very great people. God chose them. They were the chosen ones. And he assured them. He guaranteed them. But they were afraid anyway. Why? Maybe they weren't deserving. Maybe they had sinned or fallen short in some way. And so according to the Eitz Yosef and a number of the other Farshim, the Akedah talks about this. This is not a lack of faith. This is not a lack of trust. This is a beautiful expression of humility. They were chosen. Promises were made. They were reassured. But they felt small, undeserving in Hashem's eyes. Wow. Yaakov Avinu felt humble. He felt he didn't deserve it. Moshe Rabbeinu, he felt maybe he didn't deserve all of that divine largesse. So some of our Mepharshim see this as a virtue. But other Mepharshim, like for example the Ifeitoyer, see this as a, a terrible failing. In fact, the Ifeitoyer clearly spells it out. He says that the intention of the Medrash here is to learn the lessons of what not to do. <laughs> you know, how a Jewish Bible is not filled with action figures and superheroes. Other people's Bibles are. They're filled, everybody in the Bible is spanking clean. Juno-esque in appearance, sparkling, perfect. Okay, some of them suffer a little, or a lot. But they are faultless and blameless and perfect. Our Chumash, our greatest of heroes, they're like endlessly pummeled, undermined. Their weakest links constantly being highlighted, their failings emphasized. Hey, if I was writing a story about superheroes, I'd give you the most perfect people in the world. Why not? I'll write you the greatest fable. Because this is true. And the truth isn't always pretty or perfect. That we have to learn from the ways of the patriarchs and matriarchs doesn't only mean to learn from their fortune, or successes, but also to learn from sometimes their failings. Now, let's not get carried away. These people were certainly larger than life. And our deeds will never measure up to who they were. They were 
people cut from a different cloth of an entirely different caliber, spiritual light years ahead of us. A failing for Moses would be an act of supreme heroism, earn you a purple heart, <laughs> so to speak, for us. But there's a lesson we can learn. When Moses fails to follow the word of Hashem precisely and exactly, even if, in fact, Moshe Rabbeinu had some very good reasons for doing this, we're supposed to learn not to use our own logic, selfless and sensitive as it may seem. We're supposed to learn to do what Hashem says, even if we don't like or appreciate it. When the prophet Jonah, who is said to be a splinter off the block of Moshe Rabbeinu, a reincarnation of Moses himself, runs away because he knows if he delivers his prophecy, it will make his people look bad, even incriminate Am Yisrael. We read about his mistake, so we don't repeat that. The Medrash seems to tell us that we should learn from Yaakov, in this instance, what not to do. Do not learn from them, says, for example, the Pirush Yefei Toyar. In the words of the Pirush Oyer HaSeichel, Efsher Shenechshav Latos LeYakov Ule Moshe Mashinusyare. It may well be counted as a mistake, a failing, for them having been afraid or expressed fear. Ella, rather. We should, proverbially speaking, be well-established, fearless, as the Gemara in Brachas describes in great detail. We shouldn't be afraid. We should trust in Hashem. And we should know that it's going to be good. What does that mean? What does, that, what does that mean? I mean, like, that sounds so unreasonable. This is a talk we've looked at before. The Rebbe says, like, how do you understand the opinion of these Mepharshim? Some Mepharshim say that Moshe Rabbeinu and Yaakov teach us humility. Humility that maybe they failed. Maybe they made a mistake on their level. And so you and I should also be humble and never become complacent. And never be calm, certain. Who knows? You may have sinned. A sin doesn't have to be a, a big, ugly sin. It just means a shortcoming. It could be a relative sin, relative to who you could have been. For God never judges us against somebody else, but rather against the picture or image of who we could have been. We're only judged against our, ourselves or our own ability and possibilities. And that's easy to understand. But to say that they made a mistake because they were afraid. In the Rebbe's words, What is, what is the, the vice? Shechoshesh Shemagodamachet. When a tzaddik says, maybe I failed. 
Maybe I didn't serve Hashem with as much acuity, with as much intensity, with as much fervor as I should have. And as such, maybe I'm not deserving. What do you mean they made a mistake? What's wrong with second-guessing? What's wrong with not being sure that you bat a thousand or you're perfect? The Rebbe goes on in the brackets and he says, the l'cha'ira, Adrabe. As they say in Spanish, el contraire, exactly the opposite should be true. Zui mailo This is a lofty, virtuous attitude. Their humility was so great. They are dealing with tzaddikim who are never certain of themselves. Maybe I could have done a little bit better. Maybe I could have performed just one iota more. And therefore, the word chet, sin, by the way, is a gematria, shares a common numeric equivalent with the word chisaron. A lack, falling short of expectations. Doesn't mean I did something wrong. I expected more from you. So Moshe Rabbeinu was very humble. Yaakov was very humble. Oh, by the way, they both were very humble. Yeah, about Yaakov it says, Ki kotonhu, Hashem loved him and chose him because he held himself in smudge, such small esteem. Moshe Rabbeinu is said to be on of Mikol Odom Sharpne Ha'adama, the humblest person to walk the face of earth. This fits perfectly within the description of the spiritual personas of Yaakov and Moshe, respectively. How could that be seen as a, a fault, a demerit? The Rebbe says, in order to understand this, we're going to have to have a better understanding of Betachen. He says, Betachen, the Rebbe says, is not just the belief that Hashem can do whatever He wants. Hashem can save me is not Betachen. That's Emunah. I know and believe that God is omnipotent. Betochen means, I rely on God. He's my sole provider. I rely I live with a sense of certainty because I've learned to trust. He's in a total state of inner tranquility and peace. Rabbeinu Bechaya, later on, in this very book, is going to say precisely that. We're still in the preface. When we get to the first chapter, Rabbeinu Bechaya's first order of business will be to define betochen exclusively. And he's going to say, Ach, mahus ha-betochen, and I'm quoting from Rabbeinu Bechaya, the essence of betochen is menuchas nefesh habeteach. It's being in a state of tranquility. 
He goes on to describe how somebody's heart is at peace because he relies, he trusts God. And then Abinu Bachaya says, the im yipokeid, yipokeid comes from the terminology missing. The im yipokeid says the toy of Halavon on the commentary on Rabbeinu Bechaya. V'im yechsar ho'ikrazef, this is missing. Or as the Neder Bar Kodesh puts out, shalayiv tach bishleimut. He will not trust absolutely. It won't be perfect trust. Then in that case, lo yimotze habetochen. Then you won't find the certainty. Says the Neder Bar Kodesh, you won't reach that certainty that you hope for. That which you sought won't actually be in hand. You won't get that certainty you craved and you were looking for. In other words, the Rebbe says that for Rabbeinu B'chaye it's clear that the betochen means one has to trust absolutely, totally, completely on Hashem. And if he doesn't trust totally or completely in Hashem, he doesn't have betochen. And the Rebbe says, pray tell, explain that. How can you be so sure? Maybe you did sin, fall short, not fully exhaust your potential. Maybe you didn't actually fulfill Hashem's expectations. We see, even if there's an open promise from Hashem, there's a possibility of Hashem agora machet, even when Hashem gave you an open guarantee to Moshe and to Yaakov, they weren't sure. Maybe they didn't deserve it anymore. You? Me? How could we be so sure? So the Rebbe goes on to develop this notion that when a person has betochen in Hashem, that itself becomes the vehicle, that itself becomes the envelope through which the miraculous blessings come. In other words, that's the channel. The way for us to create the conduit, to bring Hashem's bracha into our life, is with that betochen. And that was the shortcoming of Yaakov. That was the mistake of Moshe because, because they were afraid. And that fear, that fear can in some way inhibit the miraculous energy that would otherwise be ours. Never goes on to explain this in the most marvelous of ways. He says, This obligation for us to work on ourselves, for us to toil and learn to trust, to live with certainty. A tremendous avayda, a very difficult thing to do. But that is actually what betochen is about. In the words of the psalmist in chapter 55, 
cast your aspirations, your considerations, your worries, your anxieties, put that on Hashem. Pin your hopes on Him. On Him alone. In other words, in order for us to be able to succeed, in order for us to be able to be certain that our rebuke isn't going to blow up in our face, we need to stop being afraid. Because if we're afraid, then our betachen is incomplete. And if our betachen is incomplete, it's not going to work. In order for us to get those blessings, in order for us to be able to succeed at doing the things we must do, like shielding ourselves from that peer pressure, like not caving into the demands of others when they're wrong. I'm not saying look for fights. That's just a dumb thing to do and inappropriate too. I'm saying when conflict comes your way and you have no choice, you have to stand up for what's right. You have to be fearless. That was the message to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel. Think about this. Why does Hashem keep telling Ezekiel, don't be afraid? And what if he will be afraid as long as he does what Hashem told him to do? Hashem tells the Navi Yecheskel no less than four times in one verse. Don't be afraid of them. From their words, their threats, don't be afraid. And then a, a half a sentence later, don't be afraid. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be intimidated. Why does Hashem have to say that? Because it's key for Yechezkel to be able to succeed in his mission. He has to get rid of his fears. If we are fearful, we're missing betochen. If we're missing betochen, then we've taken ourselves out of circulation. We're not online. The blessings, the promises, even the wherewithal ability that Hashem wants to give us won't be received or absorbed by us. This is such a powerful message. That's why I really disagree with the notion that these six verses should be grouped together. I think what God told Kamoisha Amarnovi, that's exactly as the prophet himself said. Isaiah himself said, Hashem helps me, so I'm not going to be embarrassed. Hashem helps every one of us. In HaKadosh Baruch Hu Babatrunya, it's a medrash, says God doesn't make impossible demands. Whatever God demanded of Isaiah, He demanded of Isaiah. And He gave Isaiah the strength that Isaiah needed. Whatever God demands of you and me, he gave us the strength. Otherwise, he couldn't make those demands. So if he made that expectations, I know I have the strength. Isaiah said it. I can say it too. I can't say or suggest that I should take on Isaiah's burdens or challenges. I don't have the strength to do that. But I have the strength to deal with that which I'm supposed to deal with. Just as Isaiah had the strength to deal with what he was supposed to deal with. This is a totally different kettle of fish. This is not a continuation of the same verses. The Omar. And it says, This is not the prophet telling you, you have what it takes. Hashem is with you. This is God speaking to the prophet. Why did God have to tell the prophet, Calm yourself down. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why did he have to tell that to him? In fact, in Ezekiel 6, not once does he even mention that I'm with you. He just says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of their words. 
I know they're abrasive and prickly and they'll hurt you. They'll offend you, I know. Altira, the most important thing is don't be afraid. Altecha, don't be intimidated. Why? Because if Yechezkel will be afraid, he will not succeed. Guess what? You're not Ezekiel. You're just you. I'm just me. But this, I know with certainty. If I will be afraid, I will not fully succeed. And neither will you. We've got to learn to fear no more. That's the meaning of betochen. And only when we decide to rule out fear can we be certain that we'll have the strength and the blessings we need. If we fear, we do so at our own expense, quite literally. So we start off with Ezekiel because the message to Ezekiel in verse 6 is relentless. Four times in the same verse. It's very clear. This is God commanding him. It's so important, Ezekiel, to rid yourself of these fears. Now, is Ezekiel the only prophet who feared? Well, clearly not. But he's the first prophet that God had to tell four times in one verse not to be afraid. So we begin with that quote from Ezekiel. Then we go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah also had to be told something similar. God told Jeremiah in the beginning of his prophecies, just once, but Altira. God even said, don't be afraid because I'm with you. You can't start with that verse because ki itcha is a very stout statement to make. Oh, God's with me. I know I can do this. Yeah, I have to believe God's with me. But Jeremiah got a little bit of a different don't be afraid because I'm with you. Ezekiel never heard anything like that. Ezekiel's verse can speak to us. God is acknowledging your fears. I know you're afraid, God says. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of their words. I know they'll be prickly. Don't fear them. Don't be intimidated. That sounds like you and I having a conversation. So Rebbein Bahaya begins with Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, verse 6. From there he takes us to Jeremiah to show us it wasn't only Ezekiel. Jeremiah also had to be told not to be afraid. And from there we take a look at a later verse because this really drives home the point. This is stunning. Listen carefully, please. Altechat mepneem pen achitcha. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Lest, lest you have to pay the price. What does that mean? Do you know what the Mitzudah Tzien says? This blew me away. Altifchad. Don't be afraid. Betach alai. That's the word betachan in singular fashion. Betach alai. Trust me. The oz. And then, if you trust me, then they can't harm you. In other words, they can't harm you if you trust. Your trust is your armor. Radak, Rabbi David Kimbri says the same thing. If you will not fear them, and instead you will trust me, then I save you. 
If you'll be afraid, you're on your own, man. And I'm not with you. Can you imagine? It wouldn't have been enough simply to quote the verses that we heard from Ezekiel and then Jeremiah that God says, don't be afraid. We need to bring it home with this second verse of Jeremiah because the second verse of Yermio emphasizes exactly the point that we're making. We can't afford to fear. It's too expensive. None of the things we talked about will be possible. The notion of being a slave no more, the notion of being free, being independent, the notion of not being ashamed and being able to stand tall and be proud and say the truth and speak the truth to power. None of this will be possible and you will not succeed at any of it if you have fear. Because real betochen means fear no more. And Abena Bechaya closes with the words back to Ezekiel. And he says, you must know he says in Ezekiel 9, Don't be fearful. Don't be worried about that. Why? Here, here, Rabbeinu Bechaya chooses to quote the beginning of the verse. Like a shomir who is stronger than the stone. Mitzudasian says, Barzal ha-chazak. You are iron man. You cut right through him. You claw your way right through it. You chew them up. Nasati mitzchacha, I have given, so to speak. I have set your forehead with the strongest, most brazen ability and wherewithal. Just loy tira v'leitechas mipneim. Don't be afraid. And so, my friends, and I'll conclude where I began. I strongly believe that it's a mistake to put all of these verses together. I think that a paragraph explaining the idea of rebuke and shame and the verse of Ezekiel should have been followed with another set of verses. Verses that deals with fear. The truth is Rabbeinu Bahai will develop this later on, but it's critical that he introduce it right now because, because if you have fear, none of this is going to work. And this dovetails so beautifully into the message that we've been really appreciating from the words of Rabbi Nechaya almost from the beginning. This is a sum-zero game. My friends, betochen is really an all or nothing. You have to trust. To trust kind of, halfway, it's like being a little pregnant. Either you trust God or you don't. I trust Him, but I don't trust Him. So you don't trust Him. I trust Him, but I'm afraid. So you don't trust Him. Trust means tranquility. Trust is absolute. If you are to trust God, then you must fear no more ever again. What a liberating thought. That's Rabbeinu Bechayah's promise to you. That's the meaning of betochen. If Torah gives us the mandate, we can do it. And if we only will stand tall and never be afraid again, the blessings will flow. Hashem's protection will be there and success will surely come our way. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you've been inspired and uplifted. I hope that together 
We keep working on this until we really trust Hashem and are afraid of nothing. And with that trust, as the famous verses that we say every Matzai Shabbos Saturday night as we begin Havdalah, Eftach Velo Efchat. I will trust, and that necessarily means I will not fear. Because Hine Kel Yeshuasi, Hashem is my God of salvation. And if He's my God and He's my salvation, I will trust and not fear. May that bring the messages of Elio Hanavi, the harbinger of redemption, and may we merit the coming of Mashiach. Bimheda will be a speedily and in our days. Amen. Thanks for joining.